Do you know someone deserving of a Service Award? The Service Awards celebrate the men and women who have poured, served, seated, greeted, and worked tirelessly to help us thrive. Help Yelp for Restaurants recognize their efforts by giving back to those who have given us so much. Winners receive a beautifully designed Service Trophy and a $3,000 tip. That's right, $3,000 in their pocket. Voting begins now. Visit theservies.com today and nominate that special someone for a chance to win today. No purchase necessary must be 18 plus in a U.S. resident. Six nominated contest winners will receive a prize of $3,000. Nominations must be submitted between July 31st, 2023 and August 23rd, 2023. See the official rules available at theservies.com. Now here we go. Well, I always say, don't fall in love with the deal, fall in love with the location first, and then the deal will follow. So that you put the deal together, which are the deal points. And the lease is the most critical of all of that. And it's a win-win, lose-lose because no one's happy. But the main point is to just get fair rent and make sure you can keep up to a certain degree, I would say with inflation. Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year, I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly. They always do. So many of you have reached out asking for actionable advice on how to build a restaurant in today's difficult market conditions. In response, I've cobbled together three industry experts to walk us through all facets of the process, including best practices and mistakes to avoid. Today's blockbuster panel includes Michael Benson, Mike Hatch, and Will Knox. And in part one of our conversation, we're tackling restaurant concept creation, choosing the right location, and beginning your build out on the right foot. My name is Michael Benson. I'm president of the IFE group, which was established in 2000. We have a division where we are one of the top federal government contractors of design, food service equipment, and installation services. And then the Southern California Restaurant Design Group, which is why I'm on today, was established in 2013 to take our high level of knowledge and apply it to the restaurant industry. And as of 2023, we were named one of the top 50 dealers in the country, which is a huge honor since we've really been doing this for only 10 years. Our company on the restaurant side works on design. We provide equipment, we provide installation services, We're also heavily involved in consulting our clients from start to finish on a construction project, a renovation project, or a facilities type project, which is just a replacement of a certain part of the kitchen, maybe a couple of 
ovens, combis, or refrigeration units. So we're a full service dealer that can do anything for anyone in the restaurant industry. Mike Hatch. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Mike Hatch. I'm the vice president of Hatch Design Group. We've been around since 1969. I'm second generation, one of four. We're about a 30-person office here, located just next to John Wayne Airport in Orange County. We specialize in hospitality, primarily restaurants. We're kind of known in the industry as restaurant specialists. But we do all types of hospitality design. We work on a lot of country clubs, casinos, public spaces, and we range from fast casual to super high-end restaurants. I think for the most part, our portfolio is a little more high-end than lower-end, but we like to work with startups and we like to work with established restaurateurs. Will Knox. Hi there, I'm Will Knox, and I got my start as a real estate broker primarily in residential real estate. And then in 1980, when the interest rates went to 14% with the hostage crisis before any of you guys were born, I thought to myself, what am I going to do? And I got into commercial real estate and I found a little known chef by the name of Wolfgang Puck, his very first location known as Spago. From there, I focused on restaurant-oriented real estate as a broker. And then in the early 90s, I created my own quick service concept called World Links. So that got me some legs as an operator as well. And now I operate under two guises, two hats, one being the Knox Company, which specializes in restaurant real estate and concept development. And if you truly wanted to be transactional with me, then you'd come to me as a real estate broker under the Berkshire Hathaway moniker. So I really operate as a restaurant real estate and concept development guy. And so the reason that the three of you are on the show and the three of you are on the show together is collectively, these are the people that can help take a restaurant from concept to opening, which is a really interesting conversation to have in two ways. Number one, you're both experts in your given fields, but more importantly, you've been exposed to hundreds, if not thousands of restaurateurs, restaurant groups, types of restaurant operators, and you've seen the good, the bad, and everything in between. So what I thought would be most useful is to track the conversation kind of through the life cycle of a restaurant, starting with ideation and concept, which is where I think a lot of these conversations start with you, and then moving all the way through, it's time to sell that restaurant, hopefully after a number of years of being open. And so if we were to start with concept, I guess the questions that I have for the three of you are, what are the questions that most restaurateurs are asking in those early stages? And then what questions should they be asking that the best operators you've worked with are asking? I think primarily the first things they ask me is how much is it going to cost? And how long you know, is it going to take? <laughs> how long is it going to take? Find me a great location. How many seats am I going to get? Do you see any problems with the site? All those kind of questions. They're all good questions that most people don't know how to answer. Yeah, and I think the biggest issue right now is capital. Since COVID hit and everybody's kind of struggled with the after COVID period, supply chain, huge amounts of inflation hitting the economy over the last two years, 
what we're seeing is a lot of budgets that were 2019 or pre 2019 that are still being utilized in the planning in 2023. So we're seeing a lot of clients that are going back to the drawing board because they didn't have the foresight to update all the numbers they had been working on during that period before COVID hit. The two M's, Michael and Mike, tend to work more in the corporate uh, environment than Will Knox, who's more with the upscale independent operators. And those guys are always searching for money. And I won't get to any gear with these guys unless I know they really have a business plan and they've got some backing. It's a pity when they come to you and they say, oh, I just love this site. And I say, okay, let's do a letter of intent. And they say, but I still need 90 bit days. I need 120 days to get the money. And that's ass backwards, excuse the expression. Money is king. Capital is king. We're seeing a large amount of that type of behavior right now where there's actually a space in Will's neighborhood in Beverly Hills that's already, since 2019, gone through three owners that just could not find the capital to start the process. And it's becoming even that much more imperative that we mention the capitalization of starting a restaurant at this time frame because there's a lot going on and moving forward, but I've never seen so many projects delayed over the last decade. Most of the time when people come and they want us to come walk a site with them, I typically try to start with a team. So I'll bring engineers, architects, and I'll go evaluate the site, usually with a broker like yourself, Will, and talk to the client. Maybe that's my first conversation, but typically I find that oftentimes I think they're under budget right off the start. So it's kind of my job to kind of tell them where they need to be, just hip check on site, flush out all the problems with the site, the visibility where the food comes in and out, heights of ceilings, shafts, look for money where all the problems are. And then I can start understanding how much they actually have And then maybe that's not the right site for them, but then we can kind of help steer them towards the right deal and the right site. And then I try to talk them into doing a floor plan up front before they sign a lease deal. One of the broker friends of mine, he calls it real estate porn. You give them a great looking floor plan that's colored and we can help come up with a budget based on the floor plan. The engineers kind of know what they're walking into. And then we can kind of put out a pretty good ROM budget for them at that point. And then everybody can kind of start moving forward. And then maybe a deal can get made and maybe they can get the proper financing and start that process walking forward. I have more success with that than trying to go in with a big contract right off the bat, just like you will. You don't know if they're financed or not. And it's just a waste of time for everybody. I have a case right now where a client this week said to me, we really want to go on this letter of intent. And I said, well, you got to get your design build team in there and find out what it's really going to cost because then we can back into the deal and know exactly how much rent we want from the landlord, abatement rent, TI perhaps. So all those things start with you guys. No question, Will. I see a lot of people, Will, signing leases 
before they've even established a design budget, an architectural budget, an equipment and installation budget. I did that twice, man. <laughs> yeah, the project. Yeah. No, and you have Josh. It's a terrible and the, idea. I wouldn't recommend is, it to others. <laughs> exactly. But the big problem now is pre-2019, you could scramble and find the money, but the capital sources have dried up and inflation has made it very difficult for people to raise capital on the level that is required to build you know, a top-notch restaurant. I mean, I think you understand the budget right up front. Do you have a budget set up? Yes, it's half a million or 200,000, whatever it might be. So you know what you're working with. The whole team understands. Yeah, and their business plan. Does their business plan, how many table counts do you have? How many turns? All those questions. Because a lot of times they'll walk into a space thinking they can get double the tabletops that the site will really produce. Well, and that's my question is, are you seeing more dynamic businesses today than you did in the past? You're walking through an empty space that's four walls and they're saying, listen, we want delivery and takeout over there. We want catering and manufacturing over there. And because you're seeing different construction setups now, right? Whereas it was 80-20 front of house to back of house. Now you're seeing 50-50 or 60-40 where restaurateurs are now prizing space for manufacturing. Is that what you're experiencing as well? I would say that due to COVID, the need for takeout with the Uber Eats and all that, we've been getting a lot more demand to having a takeout pickup with certain restaurateurs where that's a big part of their business, where it went from 15, 20% of their business to 40 where it's creating a lot of congestion. The Uber Eats drivers, they don't look all that great. They don't look like a, a guest that's dressed up to go to dinner or something. So sometimes we've even done a secondary entrance off the back of the restaurant kitchen to service all those type of customers. So that's a different big change in the last three years that we've had to deal with. That's if you're dealing with the real casual dining QSR segment as opposed to a sit-down. And I think you've got to have a patio in today's world. And, of course, we live in Southern California. If you're in the North Dakota where it's going to be snowing for four months, it's a different animal. So, ostensibly, it's where you live, the venue, the menu to the venue, I call it. So, you have to have the menu and the venue working in consort because that's really the space is wonderful. I'm not a big fan of first-generation space in this post-COVID world. There's so much restaurant space available that can be redeveloped, but you got to have, I think, particularly in our environment, patio, because people are nervous about the comeback. Here we are ramping up again this fall with COVID. So people are concerned about going inside, particularly older demographic. No, I totally agree with Will. On the patio topic, during COVID, we saw the really sharp operators increase their business because they were serving a lot more clients. The problem is that their kitchen infrastructure was not large enough to accommodate the increase in the amount of customers that they had to serve with the patios open. So that's something for all restauranters to think about. It's great to be able to serve more clients but is your kitchen going to be large enough to maintain the high level of quality that the consumers expect you to provide at restaurants? 
And also, too, as far as Will touching on second and third generation restaurants, with inflation the way it is and with all the availability of first generation sites that have already been emptied out, it's a great opportunity, especially for somebody on the starting end of wanting to open their first or second restaurant to go ahead, take that space, put some lipstick on it, change out the equipment based on your concept versus what was in there. You have the hoods already. You have the walk-in refrigeration. What an amazing opportunity for somebody to get in to the restaurant business without having to go through the headache of a build-out. Before we dig into construction, there's one last thing I want to touch on because I think a perfect restaurant operator with a perfect menu in a perfect location with perfect marketing can easily be undone by an imperfect lease because you can't get started on the right foot. And so I've actually had independent conversations with all three of you as it relates to leases and how people never get a fair shot if they sign in to a bad lease. So best practices, lessons to learn, issues to avoid, anything you have in this space, I think could be hugely beneficial. Well, I always say don't fall in love with the deal, fall in love with the location first, and then the deal will follow. So you put the deal together, which are the deal points. And the lease is the most critical of all of that. And it's a win-win, lose-lose because no one's happy. I'm just finishing a deal this week, actually, with a group that's had a restaurant and adjacent space available for several years. And the landlord called me yesterday and said, gosh, I've given in to everything that these guys want. I said, yeah, but you're getting fair rent post-COVID. You're getting someone to build out your space and the adjacent additional space, which is not a restaurant space. Take the money and run. They're securitized. It's a win-win for you and a lose-lose for you and a lose-lose for them and a win-win for them. Everyone's going to have a little bit of smarting. But the main point is to just get fair rent and make sure you can keep up to a certain degree. I would say with inflation, I had a client call me the other day and he said, gosh, these people want to keep me on the cost of living because inflation's gotten to 7 8%. And typically we're at 3% flat every year. And I said, well, that's what you want to try to lobby for. But in this day and age, maybe you want to do an adjustment with a cap on it and work to that degree. Oh, they won't do that. Well, they say that. But at the end of the day, you're a good tenant. So the good tenants are the ones that pay you on time and are good for their word. And the good landlords are the same, by the way. You don't want to get into an agreement with a landlord you don't trust a landlord. It's just like a marriage. I mean, if indeed you really have doubts, that marriage is not going to work. I've been married for 37 years. I can say this. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Will. What we're seeing too is the availability of spaces that a decade ago, a lot of restaurateurs wouldn't have a shot at. Retail, especially the large developers, have used the restaurant industry as a catalyst to fill the spaces that retail does not support anymore. And I think that's a benefit because I'm on the construction side, generally the space is taken, but I think Will's frustration is 
even despite what took place the last couple of years with COVID, a lot of landlords are not willing to work with restauranters to be successful and help them sustain their business. In some cases, I see where they're almost hoping that the restauranter goes out so they can try to find a way to reimagine the space and, and make more money. And I have a real issue with that. I mean, the ultimate greed of a lot of landlords is eventually going to have a great deal of pain inflicted on the restaurant industry, especially if we hit a recessionary period, which hopefully it doesn't happen. Yeah, I see I see a lot of um, restaurateurs, you know, fall in love with the site. They sign the lease too early. They really don't understand their costs associated with the build. I just recently walked one. I think I told Josh about this on our pre-call, but they had a slab level that was five inches shallower than the thresholds on all the doors. That was big bucks to have to fill the entire space up five inches after you do all your rough-ins. And that was a big cost. It was a mixed-use space three stories above the restaurant. The shaft duct weren't wrapped. Landlord didn't provide anything. That would be a big buck thing. Oh yeah, and he had two panels, so they were gonna have to have another electrical panel service brought in just so it's a single instead of a double. You add up those things alone and it cost several hundred thousand dollars maybe to bring all that stuff up to snuff that he could have put in the landlord's package. And so signing that lease early just put them behind the eight ball right off the bat. Whereas if he hired us or he, a lot of times I'll go walk a site for free and just give free advice like that. Also people sign leases that have a really short timeline. And I'm sure we'll just telling people not to do that, but it's great to understand how long your build's going to take and you start paying rent after you get your CFO. And a lot of guys are paying dead rent for four to six months before they're open and they add on all the additional services and mistakes they made along the way. And it becomes a big overage and it makes it hard for them to make it. I agree with you, Mike. I see a lot of projects where the restaurant group, you know, or independent restaurant is given free rent for a year, year and a half. But because they don't have their construction plan in place and their financing in place, they burn through all that free time and even burn through a couple of months, sometimes six to nine months to a year of having to pay rent on an unfinished restaurant. Well, I'm one of those guys that's insistent on bringing you guys in really during this letter of intent process, even before you go to leases, so that they have a clear understanding, these operators, of what it's going to take. And they've gone through the shaft. They've gone through the electrical panel. They've gone through the plumbing. They see all the hidden costs that you don't ordinarily see as certainly a customer. And you've got to go in there and truly understand at least ballpark. It's going to be half a million dollars. Okay. How long is it going to take to really build from the time they get the key? Because that's what the landlord wants is their rent. Once they start opening for business and the landlords oftentimes say, no, I don't want to wait 10 months. I'll start the clock at the end of six months, whether you got your permits or not. Well, that's an iffy proposition because in today's COVID world, and I still think we're in COVID, by the way, that we just don't want to start anything until you know it's a done deal and gone hard. And okay, we'll maybe give you half rent on the assumption that we're going to get permits. That's not good enough. 
you get those permits and then you take four months or six months to do the build out. And everybody has to understand right up front what the plan is. Otherwise, you're going to get just jacked. Yeah, you can get killed coming out of COVID. The city health department and the building department couldn't get anybody on the phone when it took four months, six months to get a permit. So a lot of people were paying dead rent during that time. And the landlords don't buy off on that, and they should because it still exists. Yeah. Do you see people thinking smaller? I go back to pre-pandemic 2014 when we acquired the lease for Pro and Proper. 6,000 square foot, the only flat iron building in downtown Los Angeles. Stunning space, two stories. If I could do it all over again and only change one thing, I would have acquired a 3,000 square foot single story location because it took two years to drive enough traffic to that location for that rent and that square footage to make sense. And so do you see guys thinking smaller, looking at smaller footprints? If you're a hard rock cafe type concept, that's a big box deal. But better you look really crowded than empty. Yeah, big restaurants are terrible. If you have a big square footage, you got to be able to make it change gears with smoke and mirrors, sliding walls, expo kitchens to drive the energy, bars to drive the energy, everything centrally located because no one wants to sit in an empty room. Hotels and clubhouses really struggle with that because if you think about a lot of the old country clubs built 20 years ago, they're full of people, but they have this small kitchen to service their bar that's up against the wall in a separate room. And then they have a small dining room and then they have a giant banquet room and no one wants to sit in the banquet room. No one wants to go to the bar. They all want, I mean the dining room, they all want to go into the bar and then their kitchen can't support their banquet rooms. They're all goofed up. The hotels have the same problem a lot. Yeah. I think it's the tale of two cities. We still see clients that have huge aspirations of building a 5,000 plus square foot restaurant. But what essentially is drilling down the sizes to much smaller rooms is the funding's not there to build something in most cases, 5,000 square feet and up. You know, also too, what we're seeing is that a lot of concepts that have strong balance sheets and a lot of capital, they are sizing down their restaurants, but also they're taking advantage of the opportunities out there. And I'm sure Will can touch on it more, but I'm seeing almost a social Darwinism in our industry where the strong are going to survive and they're going to continue to scale as others tend to struggle for a variety of reasons. When you guys look at the construction process, there are these visions for what this restaurant is going to look like. I'm sure that some people have done a worse job than me, but probably not that many in terms of investing money in things that people don't give a shit about. I'm probably best in the world at it, but it's still hard to tell from a restaurateur's perspective where we should be investing money in first generation and second generation. And so in your experience, for the people that are spending big dollars or smart dollars, where are those dollars being invested wisely? I was just working with a pretty good sized chain I want to mention, but they had a team member that was so focused on saving money, they were saving money to spend way more in the end. And so things like trying to reuse a bar die 
in the bar. And then they ended up with shallow underbar equipment, trying to keep a hood in the wrong spot, which killed the flow and the ins and out of your kitchen, and cross traffic, things like that. Trying to save something that you think is important sometimes will cost you two or three times more money. No, I agree, Mike. You don't want to sacrifice the integrity of your restaurant by going so cheap that it affects the operation. And whether there's a warranty or it runs out, decisions like that will cost you more money in the long run. I will also encourage a client to take a A location over a B location because you may be spending more money, but you could kind of write off some of the excess that you weren't planning on instead of paying, let's say, $10 a foot, you're paying $8 a foot to be in a prime, prime location, but you can charge it off to marketing. And I'm a big marketing branding type guy. I think the money is well spent when you're using it for solid real estate that you know is going to attract, but you also have to attract through the branding as well. It's all inter- It all interacts and your back of the house is really critical to the flow of the operation. Without that being efficient, you're a dead duck. It's got to be efficient. I think with this design too, Josh, you could go into a 5,000, 6,000 square foot restaurant today and make the numbers work if you're smart about how you do it. So if you're pausing at the schematic process and you're $500,000 over budget, you can really look at the design. Things that drive up the design are like custom fabricated items, a low wall behind a booth instead of just a freestanding settee or that keeps the cost down. If you look at some of the smart concepts out there, they look pretty good, but then they've cut out a lot of those built-ins And we all love the look of the built-ins. And, you know, and sometimes if you have an A site with an A operator, you know, you can get away with all that stuff and it's a home run. But smart design can look great and then still be affordable. Also, at the end of the day, it's about food. So if you compromise on food and put in canola oil instead of olive oil, I'm going to know it. (laughs) Michael Benson, as it comes to investments in back of house, when it comes to equipment and things like that, where do you see money wasted and where do you see money well spent? Well, I kind of look at the equipment side of the restaurant cost structure, like the car industry. You have the high-end equipment, which is like going out and buying a Porsche, Mercedes, a BMW. You have the middle of the road equipment which I was like going out and buying a Ford or a Chevy. And then you have the lower cost equipment, like a Geo or Prism. They all have warranties tied to them. It's really based on your budget. What can you afford? What can't you afford? Is the chef empowered to make these calls or is the budget dictating what you're going to specify and eventually buy? I see a trend, and I don't know, uh, Mike Hatch and I have never discussed it, where on the cooking side, we'll see clients go out and buy the high-end cobbies and buy the high-end convection ovens and griddles. On the refrigeration side, we see more value engineering on pricing because they just look at it as metal and a compressor. Everybody has their various thoughts about brands. And we try to obviously get that in play in the dialogue with the client. But again, with high rapid inflation, you might not be able to buy in 2023, the same equipment package you used for a restaurant you developed in 2017. 
And that's a serious thought to consider. The other problem is that on the design side and the owner side, there's not a dialogue at the initial time frame that the restaurant is being designed about budget costs for equipment. So a lot of times we're brought in because there's a major disconnect between what the client had to spend on equipment and the designer putting in brands that were 500000 to a $1 million over budget. And that's imperative. Before you have your restaurant designed, make sure you let the designer know how much you want to spend on equipment. Well, and what does that relationship look like with the chef? So as an example, so I'm a restaurateur. I'm not a chef. I can't boil an egg. But with every concept I've opened, we brought in a chef or we partnered with a chef. And literally in every instance, the chef that I partner with that informed how the kitchen itself was built out, the equipment that we used, all of that was not the chef that was helming that kitchen 12 months later. Yeah, the chef thinks it's Christmas time and they're going to want the best possible equipment that can be put into that project. Unfortunately, sometimes that can't happen because of budgetary reasons. But we've actually, and I'm sure Mike has seen it, Will has seen it, we've designed kitchens with chef involvement. And when they go, the next chef comes in and, and badmouths the whole operation. Yeah, that's very common for them to be gone in two years or a year after you open. The other thing to keep the cost down in the kitchen is when you have a established restaurateur like Sam King or Pacific Catch, Lazy Dog, some of those style, they know exactly what they want. We do a custom chef's counter, recessed pans, refrigerations, all remote, all that kind of thing. But for a newer restaurateur, if you just had a low wall and you have all buyout equipment behind there that you can roll up, then you can, to Mike's point, you can go from the Mercedes down to the Hyundai for the items that don't get as heavy use and be smart about what you're specifying. And then at the schematic design process, Michael and I work together where I'll have him budget out one of our concepts at the schematic design, maybe even really early when it's just still a hand drawing and just get a price per foot. Then when I get to the schematic level and I have cut sheets pulled, the design, then he can give me a pretty accurate budget. I do the same thing with the FF&E, the front of house. Then our client really has a good understanding of what all those costs are to move forward to where you're not super far off at the end of the road when you go to the building department, because that's where everybody runs into problems. When you go to the building department and you're half a million dollars over budget, they don't have the money and they've already got their house on the hook and everything else, and they borrowed money from their aunts and uncles, it's like scary for them and I feel for them. So you either have to stop and redesign and then they start paying dead rent. And so they're paying one way or the other. So it's really smart to work with SoCal and Hatch and really understand your costs way up front before you get to that building department, oh shit moment with your overages. Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. 
And with restaurants paired that level of visibility with Guest Manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. A special thanks to Michael, Mike, and Will. For more information on these gentlemen and their businesses, please check out the links in the show notes. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.